Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. This is The Spiritual Crisis of Our Time, Part 4. Firstly, an announcement. The Quest cycle is due to start again on October the 30th. This is a programme of seven Zoom lectures, each lasting an hour and a half, followed by half an hour of questions and answers and discussion. Scheduled for the last Saturdays of the months of this October and November and next year of January, February, March, May and June. The syllabus consists of the following topics. Firstly, the 10-dimensional crisis of our time, the horsemen of the apocalypse, so-called. We start on October the 30th, the first lecture that covers the economic and financial, pandemic, political, social and climate crises. On November the 27th, the military, technological, the clash of ideas, alteration of human nature and spiritual crises of our time. This is a unique opportunity to get an overview of the Ten Horsemen of the Apocalypse, the multi-dimensional crises of the 21st century. I've never given it before in two lectures. On January the 29th, the topic is Can Depth Psychology Be Combined with the Spirit of the Orient? On February the 26th, in what way can it be said that the world that presents itself to our senses and our reason is illusory? March the 26th, will democracies survive? Could we be faced with a global totalitarianism? And May the 28th, what is the emerging alternative view of the cosmos? And finally, on June the 25th, the human and planetary prospect. Our purpose is to help participants articulate their own vision. There will be a selection of the most powerful mystical, political and economic visions that have shaped humanity, as well as new ones required if we are to survive. I'll be giving summaries of key texts, study guidance, suggestions for reading, commentaries on music, paintings and questions for reflection will be provided. There'll be summaries of many key books, reading lists, videos and newsletters also provided. The support system is extensive. If you're interested, please contact myself, Alan Mulhern, at thepilgrimquest at gmail.com or contact details can be found on my website www.alanmulhern.com So let us proceed to our subject matter. The Western world has never had an ideal spiritual moment in its history, which it has lost and can return to. The world's religions and spiritual traditions have, of course, given enormous comfort, guidance, meaning and light to millions of individuals. However, so much of religion has been distorted, compromised and corrupted since it has been unable to withstand the temptations of power, sexuality and avarice. As explained in the previous episode, the last 600 years has seen a diminishment and restriction of the influence of the Catholic Church in the West, and with good reason. For left to itself, and in the absence of countervailing state power, it aimed at total control of human beings, with a set of instructions how they should think and behave. Backing this was a set of imaginary rewards and punishments that, from a modern perspective, appear as a mixture of the infantile, heaven, the demonic, hell, and the manipulative, purgatory. 
To get an idea of the power of its all-embracing ideology, you may read a summary of the Divine Comedy, in which Dante, starting at the Inferno, ascends through purgatory and into heaven, at first in search of his lost love Beatrice, and then led by her in search of the Divine Light. His was one of the greatest minds of the medieval period. He was writing La Divina Commedia in the early 1300s, the late medieval period, and could not think outside the Christian cosmic vision. So all-powerful was its paradigm. This did not stop him in the first book of the trilogy, The Inferno, condemning the clergy for avarice, quote, those to the left, their heads bereft of hair, were clergymen and popes and cardinals, within whom avarice works its excess. He also puts the Pope of that time, Boniface VIII, and his predecessor, Nicholas III, into hell for avarice and simony. Simony, the sale of spiritual indulgences and the like. I'm sure that produced many a wry smile. Subsequently, say from 1400 onwards, instead of a Catholic vision of human beings who constantly offended their creator by their sins, the Renaissance gave a vision of a liberated human soul with a vast imaginative expanse in front of it, breaking from the older paradigm within which Dante and millions of others had lived. The Renaissance offered the opposites of a renewed awareness of classical antiquity, but with an entirely new world geographically, mentally and spiritually opening up in front of it. John Keats, the English poet, much later in 1816, after reading a new translation of Homer, wrote, Then felt I like some watcher of the skies, when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortes, when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific, and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. The new planet that he refers to is almost certainly Uranus, discovered by William Herschel in 1781, 14 years before Keats was born, and the first to be discovered since antiquity. And although Cortes was not quite the first European that we are aware of to gaze upon the Pacific Ocean, this was reputed to be Vasco Núñez de Balboa, another conquistador and explorer in 1513, Two essentials are communicated by Keats. The planetary changes, signifying a vast expansion in consciousness of the emerging scientific revolution, and the discovery of the New World from the late 1400s, which marks the beginning of the modern era. Changes in scientific knowledge and a reconfiguration of the political and military map put Europe at the emerging centre of global power. The moment that Keats chose to dramatise was the astonishment of the Spanish, who had gone to the New World in search of plunder, adventure and conquest, but had no idea that there was another ocean, the other side of the continent they were on. Columbus himself, you may remember, had made four journeys to the Americas in the 1490s, 20 years previously. And he had never given up on the idea 
that he had made landfall in the Orient, probably India, which had been known since antiquity. Hence the name Indios, or Indians, for the indigenous peoples. This is a telling metaphor for the historical process, and also for our own times. What is in front of one in the historical process is often totally surprising, a source of astonishment, and is almost impossible to predict. Nicholas Copernicus, born in 1473 in modern-day Poland, is famous for his heliocentric theory, published in the year of his death, 1543, 70 years later. It is said he awoke from a coma caused by a stroke to see the final printed pages of his book and then died. His famous work is titled De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium, The Revolution of the Heavenly Worlds. The very word worlds must have raised a few eyebrows in the church since it was not believed that, that there were other earths or worlds elsewhere. In it, he wrote, In medio uro omnium residit sol, which translates as, Indeed, the sun resides at the centre of everything. Actually, he was by no means the first to say this. 1800 years previously, the Greek astronomer Aristarchus of Salamis had already realised that the earth moves round the sun and not vice versa. Once again we see the enormous importance for the Renaissance of classical antiquity, that is the Greek-Roman world. And it was especially in the Greek world, prior to Alexander, where a new freedom had been found. And from that new freedom came immense new knowledge. However, Copernicus provided not just the hypothesis of the Earth going around the Sun, but the calculations to demonstrate this theory. Not only the Earth's calculations, but those of the Moon and other planets. In fear of hostile reactions, he had delayed its publication. It was written in Latin, and also in the technical language of astronomy, so it was fairly inaccessible outside well-educated circles. He even dedicated it to the reigning Pope, probably as a precautionary measure. Among his considerable academic accomplishments, Copernicus had a doctorate in the canon law of the Catholic Church and knew he was in a dangerous position. But the reaction was also from outside the Catholic Church. Martin Luther, the champion of Protestantism and opponent of the papacy, had got wind of his theory a few years before its publication and wrote in 1539, quote, People gave ear to an upstart astrologer who strove to show that the earth revolves not the heavens or the firmament, the sun and the moon. This fool wishes to reverse the entire science of astronomy. But sacred scripture tells us, Joshua chapter 10 verse 13, that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. Unquote. Martin Luther. Mm. Rather unfortunate, in retrospect, to call Copernicus a fool, who was an extraordinary Renaissance polymath and scholar, 
and also unconvincing on the part of Martin Luther to use as his authority on science an ancient Jewish prophet. The inclination to use religious and ideological authority over and against scientific observation has been to the long-run detriment of Christianity. Actually, the Catholic Church was slow at first to react in a hostile manner to the heliocentric theory that the Earth goes around the Sun. But gradually, it became obvious that this theory posed a threat to the heart of its medieval cosmology. This cosmology was based on an interpretation of the book of Genesis, the first in the Old Testament, that puts mankind and the earth at the centre of God's creation, plus the theories of Ptolemy from the 2nd century AD, who was an astronomer living in Alexandria, who provided tables that showed the revolution of the heavenly bodies, and this was totally a geocentric system. That is, it placed the earth at the centre of the cosmos. The Copernican revolution was, however, to set in motion an unstoppable force. But the Catholic Church was, in the generations after Copernicus, to attempt precisely this. For example, Giordano Bruno in 1600, as we've seen, was barbarically burnt at the stake by the Church. Although this was for charges connected with his views on the Trinity, the divinity of Christ and the like, it was well known that he extended the Copernican model and proposed that distant stars were suns surrounded by planets with possible life of their own and that the universe had no centre but was infinite. Subsequently, there is an even more famous event concerning Galileo, who also demonstrated the heliocentric system, but with a lot more evidence than had previously been possible since he had telescopes as well as a brilliant inquiring mind that looked for concrete evidence for his theories. Unfortunately, he roused the anger of Pope Urban VIII, and he was forced to recant. Once again, the evidence or authority against his theory was so-called sacred scripture. Since he recanted, he was spared torture by the Inquisition and put under house arrest till his death in 1642. Legend has it that, after his recantation, he was heard muttering the words, Yet it moves, by which he was referring to the earth, of course, not the sun. One of the differences between the Bruno and Galileo episodes was that, in the former, the church was supposedly condemning Bruno in 1600 for theological matters, divinity of Christ and so on. Whereas by the time of Galileo's trial of 1633, the church had taken issue with astronomy itself. By the 1700s, it had realised, however, it was on the losing side of this battle and had removed Galileo's works from the prohibition list, the index, and by the 1800s had stopped opposing the heliocentric view. After all, the church had in its ranks many teachers and professors who were perfectly aware of the emerging scientific worldview and some of whom contributed to it. For those who believe fervently that we are on the edge of a new liberating paradigm in the 21st century, it is worth contemplating that the Renaissance offered an incredible vision of a liberated humanity with vast potential and a new connection to the earth and cosmos, i.e. a totally new paradigm. Yet, 
the Renaissance led not to this new paradigm, but to the Protestant Reformation, and then the Counter-Reformation reaction by the Catholic Church. It was followed by religious wars in Europe, also the beginnings of a vast colonial conquest, now within range of new ships and the armies they carried, and the rewards were extraordinary. This was followed by the birth of the Scientific Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. What in reality followed the Renaissance and the end of the medieval period was not a new spiritually liberated humanity, as much as a new system of power and materialism, economic and technological revolutions, colonial conquest and exploitation, and a revised version of Christianity, Protestantism, in the north of Europe, and subsequently spreading to North America. That proved very favourable to the emergence of capitalism. While the Catholic Church suffered a long-term decline in Europe, it extended its reach into new continents, especially Latin America, on the backs of conquering armies. It's worth reflecting that, although South and Central America had at least a hundred-year start on North America in terms of colonialisation and European influence, it was North America that quickly became the more prosperous. The reason for this almost certainly lies in the different religious backgrounds of their conquerors. In Central and South America, the Spanish and Portuguese had a Catholic background, while in North America, it was the Protestant that dominated. As Max Weber pointed out, it is Protestantism that is the favourable religious and ideological midwife for capitalism. The new world order that was eventually to emerge was the scientific and industrial revolutions plus slowly evolving democratic governments. This would have been very difficult to identify in the 15 and 1600s. The clearly identifiable forces of that time were the religious wars in Europe between Protestants and Catholics, the shifting alliances of states and monarchs, the expansion of European colonialism, and so on. However, an early glimpse of this new order was in the civil war in England, of the 1640s, which essentially was an attempt to reduce the autocratic power of monarchs, their tyranny, and establish a parliament, a democracy. For those who think capitalism is just another form of tyranny, even a brief acquaintance with Karl Popper's The Open Society and Its Enemies, published in 1945, is worthwhile. For capitalism had to establish its own freedoms in order to function effectively. Freedom of knowledge, movement, capital, migration, freedom to invest, gain profit, and freedom from monarchs, aristocracies, feudal and mercantilist systems. This also meant the freedom to exploit, conquer and destroy other peoples, dominate the world's oceans And as we now painfully realise, it has also meant the freedom to destroy the world's ecology and life forms. The age of the freedom of the capitalist system and the democracies it has created has come to an end. In the 21st century, unless the West completely re-evaluates its worldview, it is facing serious decline. An important freedom for capitalism was also freedom from the church. One of the reasons why capitalism did not develop in Italy, where so many conditions were favourable, was the role of the Catholic Church in controlling and suppressing new knowledge, as we've just seen. 
Capitalism vitally depended on new knowledge. Obviously, this applied to inventions and innovations, which drive the technological heart of the system. But it also applied to a worldview, which was favourable to the emerging science. While many of the early scientists, for example in astronomy, were men of a religious and even mystical disposition, such as Kepler and Newton, as the Industrial Revolution gathered force, it required and produced altered mentality, a changed view of nature, the cosmos and the human being. The freedom of new knowledge and the immense power and consequences of this were to be realised in Northern Europe and then North America and subsequently the rest of the world has followed this path into a business materialist civilization. This naturally carried with it a materialist worldview, which stretched into every area of knowledge, from cosmology, the history of the universe, the evolution of our planet and its life, ourselves, our own bodies, our minds. I will now describe some of the main elements of the unfolding scientific revolution in which God was reduced and then dispensed with. Please see Fritjof Capra's The System's View of Life, published in 2014, for an excellent overview of this in the early chapters. Francis Bacon, 1596-1650, proposed that we should not live in harmony with nature, but see it as a machine, and our task is to dominate and exploit it with the weapons of science. Descartes, 1596-1650, developed the theory of scientific certainty with mathematics as the key to understand nature. In fact, he advanced a new mathematics, combining algebra and geometry. Philosophically, he applied the principle of doubt to all things, until he arrived at his very thinking, which was the undeniable, indubitable essence of humanity. Analysis required the dissecting of all things into their smallest parts. Mind became superior and separate to matter. Nature, the universe, was a machine and were explained by mechanical laws. The purpose of mankind was to analyse, understand and exploit nature. The machine metaphor was the key to biology, life science, medicine, well, almost everything in our natural world. Newton. 1642-1727, synthesised the laws of gravity and planetary motion. The inverse square law demonstrates that gravitation is inversely related to the square of the distance from the other object. Thus, if our moon were twice as distant from the Earth as it is now, then it would exert a quarter of the gravitational force that it does now. If it were three times the distance it would exert a ninth of the force. Newton invented the differential calculus by which the motions and velocities of planetary bodies could be calculated accurately, thus demonstrating elliptical orbits such as planets around the Sun. This was proved valid throughout the solar system. His achievements dominated science for 300 years and showed the impact of precise mathematical reasoning However, he demonstrated a method based on evidence, not just reasoning. 
that his method was inductive as opposed to deductive. Space and time, for Newton, were absolute and independent of matter. They were unchanging and uninfluenced, totally homogeneous, with nothing external to them. All material elements or atoms moved in this space and time and consisted of tiny, indestructible particles which were held together by gravity. It was only the density of atoms within the objects which explained the differences between objects. Newton believed, like many scientists of his day, that God was the first mover or creator of space, time and all matter. He wound up the clock, stepped back and the universe ran itself according to mechanical laws. These principles explained all planetary motion, the flow of the tides and other phenomena related to gravity. It was applied throughout physics, astronomy, the motion of fluids, the theory of heat and the atomic theory of chemistry. The vision of elementary particles throughout all nature and a mechanical universe was the basis of the new sciences. This model dominated science until the late 19th century and then its limits appeared with the study of electricity and electromagnetism, notably with Michael Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell. The concept of force was replaced with that of a field since these phenomena, electricity and electromagnetism, could be really only properly understood as a field. The age of mechanical force was now strongly challenged and Einstein made this clear at the start of the 20th century. Two new theories of physics, relativity and quantum theory, shattered all the principal concepts of the Cartesian and Newtonian worldview. This worldview had included the notion of absolute space and time, the elementary solid particles, the fundamental substance, the strictly causal nature of physical phenomena, and the objective description of nature. None of these concepts could be used with the new physics. The mechanistic view of life no longer fitted. With respect to the life sciences in the 19th century, the discovery that life forms were built from tiny cells reinforced the mechanical reductionist model. These cells even appeared to work in a factory-type manner, with specialist cells storing, transporting, exporting material, and then assembling and manufacturing a final product. It was demonstrated by Pasteur that a vast world of tiny bacteria underlay all life, and this revealed a major insight into the origins and transmission of diseases, with huge implications for modern medicine. Lamarck, at the start of the 19th century, had provided the first thorough and coherent account of the evolution of life, which developed by natural laws. Half a century later, Darwin and Wallace gave the materialist explanation of natural selection as the mechanism that drove the branching evolutionary process. Darwin published the landmark Origin of Species in 1859. It was the random variation of those characteristics most adapted to the environment and passed on to offspring that explained the survival and evolution of a species and even how it could change into a different species. It was Gregor Mendel, an Austrian monk, publishing in 1866, who demonstrated the mathematical laws of the units of hereditary. Notice again, 
it was a semi-mechanical reductionist Cartesian type model that explained the essence of life as it was seen by pioneers of that time. The acceptance of these theories was rapid and in the course of the following century the advances were extraordinary. Ever smaller units were discovered and their architecture deciphered and explained. New instrumentation and technologies became capable of observing these units. Life was built from cells, which contain chromosomes in which there are genes. This appeared to underpin all life on Earth, perhaps even the universe. The cells contain proteins and nucleic acids, DNA and RNA, which are chains of thousands of atoms. The genes along chromosomes have enzymes that have specialised chemical reactions that determine hereditary traits. Proteins were long-chain molecules with a sequence of different amino acids and have a stable, folded, three-dimensional structure coiled in a double helix, discovered by Crick and Watson in 1953. The precise sequence of amino acids determines the nature of the gene. Genetic information is therefore encoded in chromosomes and the process of self-replication. Fritjof Capra, in his book The System's View of Life, comments, Advancing to ever smaller levels in their exploration of life, molecular biologists found that the characteristics of all living organisms, from bacteria to humans, were encoded in their chromosomes, in the same chemical substance, using the same code script. They had discovered the alphabet of a truly universal language of life. Genes specify the enzymes that catalyse all cellular processes, including biological traits and behaviour. But powerful though this realisation is, says Capra, it becomes a position of genetic determinism, and this is too simplistic. It was more complex than simply specifying each gene to a specific enzyme. There now exists, he says, increasing opposition to the primacy of the gene as the main player in the theory of life. I shall continue this developing drama in the next episode, since it is science of all disciplines that opens up a new vision of the universe.